Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm James Rogers, and in this episode, we're asking a difficult question. Is Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig the most hated man in modern British history? He commanded the British Army when it achieved its greatest victories during the First World War, but despite this, he remains a controversial figure especially when his reputation was reappraised during the 1930s and the 1960s, when he was deemed to be far more of an incompetent leader. Well, to find out the truth behind these myths, Dan was joined by Gary Sheffield, who's Professor of War Studies at the University of Wolverhampton and a specialist on Britain at war between 1914 and 45. His latest book is Douglas Haig, From the Somme to Victory. Gary, you're the bravest man in academia because you're not a defender of Douglas Haig, but you're someone who tries to bring a far more even-handed approach to scholarship concerning Douglas Haig than lots of other previous historians and, and journalists and writers have done. He is, to some people, let's talk about the historiography of Douglas Haig, to some people he's one of the sort of most hated men or, or most despised men in, in modern British history, isn't he? But you've come out and said he's been dealt with unjustly. Well, that's right. I, mean, I always think that the closest historical parallel to, to Douglas Haig is probably Lord Cardigan of Charge of the Light Brigade fame in terms of sort of vitriol of people come up against him. When I started looking at the First World War, I mean, 30 odd years ago now, I bought into the lines led by Donkey's idea, the idea that Haig was a sort of just incompetent busher. But actually, the more I studied the subjects, the more I began to read around it, the more it, it didn't strike me as being a true picture. And what I've tried to do in my writings on Haig is really to sort of do away with the idea of him as a sort of pantomime villain, that to see him as a, as, as a more nuanced figure who did some, he made some, plenty of mistakes with really bloody consequences, but he did some, I think, quite a, a effective work as a general too. And so I'd see him neither as a as the sort of, you know, the villain of the piece, nor am I actually some of the one of the, the people who sees him as being one of the great generals of history. In my view, Haig is somewhere between those those two extremes. Let's try and get a sense of the challenge that faced generals in World War One. I. I don't know about you, but I, it strikes me it's probably one of the, the greatest challenges ever faced military leaders in history. Rapidly changing technology, continental-scale warfare, 
you name it. So why did generals struggle in World War One? And, and we're talking generals, Austro-Hungarians, Russians, Serbs, Brits, French. Nobody covered themselves in glory, certainly in the first few years of, of World War One. Why was that? I think the basic problem is, as you've just put it, that technology is changing quite rapidly. And there was an almost but not quite unique set of circumstances whereby the defensive dominated the battlefield. Now, this has been, for those who had eyes to see, this has been developing for many years. I mean, arguably as far back as the American Civil War in the 1860s. But to put it very, very crudely, that the level of technology was such in terms of the ability to, 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 to deal some lethal fire on the battlefield, that if you actually dug a hole in the ground, a trench, and put a man in it, he was much more difficult to hit than the soldier advancing into the open to try and attack the man in the trench. And that simple problem defined generalship across the peace in the First World War. Interesting you mentioned the Austro-Hungarians, because certainly uh, if you look at the battles on the Eastern Front between the Austrians and, and, and the Russians, you'll find there's no monopoly of, of bad generalship in the West. And one of the things I've, I've always argued about Haig is that you should see him in this context of this extreme difficulty of generalship in the First World War. But he actually has a more difficult job than most because he isn't simply a battlefield general. He's also the man who, from late 1915 to the end of the war, is the senior British commander in France with everything that entails. He's, in fact, he's doing three jobs, I would argue. He's a battlefield commander, an army group commander, we call him today. He's also the senior Brit in theatre, dealing with the French and so on and so forth. He's also the senior Brit um, commanding in France and Belgium, meaning he's the one who has to deal with the government. So he's got this absolutely enormous job. And my well, one of the things I've tried to argue is got a balanced view of Haig's successes and failures. You must see his job as a whole and not simply isolate one bit of it. You, we mentioned the Austro-Hungarians there, the Russians, bad generalship Haig. How well equipped was Haig and his peers to deal with this new battlefield? I mean, there was fiendishly complicated technology that had just been invented and was changing all the time. Warfare on an absolutely unprecedented industrial scale. But... Do you think the British Army had done its best in preparing this generation of general officers to think deeply, to innovate, to to master this modern battlefield? I think, I mean, a, a terribly fence-sitting answer coming up, both yes and no. Yes, in the sense that the British Army or the, the, the commands of the British Army that goes to war in 1914 are very, very experienced um, but their experience is in a rather different sort of war. So almost everybody has been through the Second World War, ends just over 10 years before the First World War breaks out. They they had experience of fighting a large-scale colonial war, which actually proved to be, have only limited uh, relevance to what went on on the Western Front. In terms of actually preparing them intellectually, well, they did do some of those sorts of things at Staff College, for example, and the army certainly wasn't sort of barren intellectual waste, as some people would have you believe. But I remember reading uh, one senior general in his memoir said they never, um, even at Staff College, even, even planned an exercise to deal with more than six divisions at one time. And yet, of course, on the Western Front, Haig, at its peak, was commanding 60, 60 divisions. And so no one had prepared them for that sort of scale. The other thing I think is worth bearing in mind is that the British soldiers, uh, like, like all their contemporaries, Germany, France, and so on, 
were well aware of how devastating modern fire power could be. It didn't come as a surprise to them to actually find the, the huge casualties of 1914. But the experience of recent warfare and the most recent relevant sort of warfare was the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, suggested that in spite of heavy casualties, if you were prepared to take those but continue to suppress the attack, the side with a higher level of morale, in that case the Japanese, could overcome and win. And so when they go into war in 1914, they're really expecting uh, heavy casualties, but they also expect that they will be able to get through this and the side with a higher morale will, will win. Of course, in the event, the casualties on the Western Front are greater than anything that they've anticipated before, and they have to rapidly recalibrate their thinking. And you can criticize them for being slow on the uptake, I actually think that they do remarkably well and they actually innovate remarkably quickly. Now, that's not for one moment to attempt to apologise or, or for or, or gloss over the vast losses, and some clearly were due to mistakes made by, by the generals. But when you consider that this generation of generals who were born in the 1860s or even before, so they're in their 50s at the time the First World War breaks out, adjust really quite quickly to the role of the aeroplane the role of modern artillery, uh, the role of the tank. And by 1918, the British Army actually is technologically extremely advanced and arguably the most effective army in the world. That's four short years. So they must have something going for them. They couldn't all be stupid and technology adverse. Well, I think, Gary, that you, you put your finger on the, the key thing there, is that people think of it stagnation, conservative, hidebound thinking. Actually, arguably, it's the most speedy, an aggressive period of innovation and technological change in the entire history of the British Army. I think that's right. I, I actually think that you have to look to today with the way that warfare is changing with digitization and you know basically the use of IT underpinning weapons. You have to look today to find a comparable period in terms of change. Um, there used to be a view that most of the major changes in warfare came in the Second World War. But actually, that's been really thoroughly revised now. I mean, almost the only thing I can think of that was a genuine change in the Second World War from the first was the introduction of nuclear weapons. But everything else has its roots in the First World War. Certainly, I spent the first 20 years of my career teaching British officers uh, at Sandhurst and then, then the Staff College. And I think it's fair to say when I sort of explained to them what was happening in the First World War, their reaction was, well, actually, that's the sort of war we fight today. Now, 1418 is a much more primitive version, obviously, but nonetheless, this is really is the beginning of modern warfare. We're jumping think... around here, Gary, because I, I wanted to talk about oh, the Hague. No, but I, it's, you're right, it's so exciting, because the Battle of Amiens in 1918 looks and feels a lot like uh, Operation Desert Storm. It's, it's armoured warfare, roll, artillery you know, spotted by aircraft. It's far more like warfare 100 years afterwards than, in fact, the Battle of Lakato only three or four years before. Well, that's right. I mean, I mean, Lakato, I think, is the British Army's last Napoleonic battle. I think if Napoleon had been beamed down from Valhalla or wherever he is in at the beginning of the war in August 1914, it broadly recognised what was going on. I mean, the warfare was not that dissimilar. But if he'd actually sort of waited until 1918 to come back, you know, he wouldn't have had a clue. If he had turned up at Amiens, as, as you say, armoured warfare, uh, aircraft, very close relationship between artillery and 
uh, and uh, aircraft using radios, which actually transformed the, the artillery's ability to, to hit things. All of this is a very, very modern form of warfare. Now, I think we've got to be slightly careful in going too mad about comparing it with Blitzkrieg or things that came afterwards, because, of course, this is, is, is quite, uh, quite, a, a, quite a slow, as we'd say today, tempo of operations, because tanks actually move you know, ra rather slowly. But quite clearly, all the things are in place. And uh, I think what happens in the Second World War really is the lessons of the First World War are picked up, dusted down and put into action. Uh, from a British, indeed, a sort of Western perspective, it's, it's a shame that actually it's the Germans who actually make the running at the beginning of the Second World War, putting into practice the lessons of the First World War. But later in the Second World War, the Allies, of course, catch up. While I've got you here, I need to, uh, we need to, I need to, because uh, you've got unparalleled knowledge of, of Haig as a man. I am fascinated by First World War generals. Did they know? Of course they knew, but how did they, you've read his letters, his diaries? You've got close to him than anyone else. How did he deal with the fact that so many young men were dying under his under his command, and certainly in the first couple of years, seemingly for no tangible gain in terms, certainly in terms of territory on the Western Front. Well, Hague as an individual uh, had what has been described as the mask of command. Now, actually. I think all commanders in history, if they're any good at all, actually have this ability to mentally insulate themselves from the consequences of the decisions that they make. Now, this is not to say that they're, um, they're simply callous. Winston Churchill, I think, put it quite well. He said that Haig was like a, a surgeon in the pre-anesthetic era, that he would operate on a patient, and if the patient died, he wouldn't reproach himself. But he said, you know, basically outside the operating theatre, as it were, uh, uh, Haig's um, heart was as, was as warm as anybody else's. I think the problem with Haig is that he's a, not a 21st century figure. Now, that sounds a silly thing to say, but because he died in a scheme of things not that long ago, there are still people alive today who were small children when he was commanding on, on the Western Front. Somehow we think of Haig as being our contemporary in a way that we wouldn't think of, I don't know, Henry VIII or William the Conqueror or something like that. But I think we've got to put ourselves into that late 19th century, early 20th century mindset. Now, there is very clear evidence that whereas Haig you know, could insulate himself against losses experienced en masse, when individual losses struck home. You know, he could really, you know, be, be very emotional. Uh, George Black, Geordie Black, who was one of his ADCs from his old regiment, um, served Haig for, I think, three years and got fed up, basically being kept away from the battlefront. And so Haig eventually gave, uh, gave Geordie Black permission to go off and join an active unit. And he joins the tank corps and, you know, sad inevitability, he's killed in August 1918. And when Haig is told this, it hits him like a thunderbolt. Though he doesn't, he's not a man who wears his heart on his sleeve, but it's quite clear to people around him, he's really, really devastated by it. In the end, I guess, Haig, because the army he commanded is bigger than any other British army in history, and because of the vast scale of the fighting and you know and and the losses which are brought about by the technology it's inevitable that that the army under Haig's command suffers the greatest ever losses in history and i think Haig has been blamed for that 
rather unfairly, because if it hadn't been Haig, it had been somebody else in that, in that position. But Haig himself was not callous. Certainly after the war, he throws himself um, wholeheartedly into uh, veterans' welfare. He becomes the president of the British Legion. In effect, he becomes the leader of British ex-servicemen. It's sometimes been suggested he does this out of a sense of guilt. I don't, I don't detect that at all. What he does have is not a sense of guilt, but a very highly developed sense of duty. So just as in the First World War, and indeed before, British officers are taught that the, the welfare of their men should be you know, head and shoulders above their own welfare in their consideration. After the war, Haig sees his role as being to champion the ordinary soldier uh, or ex-serviceman. And actually, I think it's very important for British political history that Haig was the man he was. He was socially and politically conservative with a big and a small c, and, but he did not see his role as being to use the um, electoral or political um, might of the ex-servicemen to bring about change, which he quite easily could have done. At the time, Haig was uh, feared by some on the left as sort of being a sort of British Mussolini in waiting, which actually was not the case because his political views were not like that. But it easily could have been had he been a rather different character. And I think this impact of Haig in the sense of, you know, the dog that did not bark has been underplayed by historians of Britain in the interwar period. You know, I read that in your book and it was such an important point. I'd, ne I'd never thought about it. But you look at the US and, and uh, France and Germany, Peyton, Hindenburg, you know, there were there are so many examples of, of generals from World War One who go on to wield often fairly unsuccessful political power. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Let's talk, let's talk about the chateaus. Let's talk about chateau generalship. It's something everyone's heard of. What was Haig's day-to-day -day life? I mean, was he immersed in signals intelligence, maps, ADCs reporting back, casualty figures? Or was he able to visit the front line, smell the cordite, kick the tyres on the coalface? Yes, he was. I mean, generally speaking, he would spend the morning 
at GHQ. Uh, but he would go out and visit units in the afternoon. In fact, he did this, I think, because he wanted to keep in touch with, with, with the army. Also, actually, his major way of taking exercise was to ride. So he would frequently ride out or drive out in a car and have his, have his horses joining him. Now, Haig, of course, had been a frontline soldier. He had been a frontline soldier in Sudan in 1898, uh, to some extent in the Boer War, and of course famously during the first Battle of Ypres in October, November 1914, when he'd been commanding First Corps, so before he took over command of the entire BEF, he had gone to the front. I mean, on, on, on one, one famous occasion, on uh, Halloween 1914, the line had collapsed and he rode to the front to basically see what he could do. And so it... He was not a man who shirked uh, frontline service. He was not a coward, as some people have suggested. But actually, it really was not the job of a commander-in-chief to be in the frontline trench. Now, partly this was because there was a steady attrition of valuable staff officers. Now, staff officers took years to train, and um, many of them actually were killed needlessly, either sort of leading assaults or simply visiting frontline trenches. Uh, Johnny Goff, who was Haig's chief of staff at First Army, uh, uh, sorry, at First Corps, was going home to take command of a, of a division of the Kitchener Volunteers, and he went to the to the trenches to say goodbye to his old battalion, and he was sniped in the frontline trench. So it's so easy for people like that to be killed off. The second reason why it's not a particularly good idea for high commanders like Haig to go to the front line is that the closer you get to the front line, the fewer people you can actually command. You actually needed to be somewhere behind the lines, somewhere big enough to take a telephone exchange. There's many reasons for, for having headquarters in chateaus. Luxury is certainly one of them. But actually a building big enough to do these sorts of things is another one. If you are there and you can actually contact your entire army pretty well up to the front line trench by telephone, if you go to the front line, Haig would have, in effect, demoted himself from field marshal to second lieutenant, because the only people who could have heard his commands were those who, that he could physically have, have shouted at. Uh, and so Haig's, indeed all uh, First World War commanders, are caught in this bind. Virtually all of them are promoted frontline soldiers who want to be at the front. That's where they want, that's, that's where they, they feel they ought to be. And yet if they do that, they cut themselves off from the, the very limited means of actually influencing the frontline battle. Of course, once the soldiers go over the top into no man's land, then the uh, commanders like Haig in the rear cannot command them because, of course, they have to leave their telephone wires behind. And Haig, in effect, fights his battles once the, the men go over the top isolated from, from, from the men. One of the things I, I, I was very um, interested to find in, in my research for, for my book is that we know exactly what Haig was doing at midday on the 1st of July 1916, so the middle of the first time of the song. He was catching up with his routine correspondence. Now, we know that because he not only dated the letter, he also timed it. Now, actually, at first sight, it seems ludicrous. I mean, possibly even obscene for Haig to be you know, writing letters when a battle is going on. In truth, it's about as good a use of his time as any other, because until the information started to come through, which it was always late and usually inaccurate, you know, he might as well have used his time productively 
writing letters as any other way. What changes, of course, in the Second World War is the introduction of um, walkie-talkie radios, which actually are very primitive varieties are coming in at the end of the First World War, but they don't really affect the, the practice of command. So whereas 100 years before Hague, Wellington at Waterloo, or even 50 years before that, Lee at Gettysburg could get on his horse and ride round his army and, and give orders. By the First World War, these armies are far too big and far too dispersed to do that. And 25 years after the First World War, someone like Montgomery or Patton could actually get on the radio net and find out what's going on. But Hague doesn't have that option. The First World War is really the only major war in history fought without the benefit of voice control. And until we understand that, you know, it's a bit difficult to understand why generals like Haig had the problems of command they actually did on the Western Front. It's certainly, I think it's, as I said earlier, I think it's the most fiendish set of circumstances ever confronted a, a military commander. Do you think anybody would have done a better job? If you look at his peers or you look perhaps at uh, Monash, the Australian, Curry, the Canadian, people often talk about those two. Uh, you look at Rawlinson, who who seemed to really get his act together by 1918, or even Smith Dorian, who arguably performed very well at the beginning of the war at Lakato. Do you think anybody would have cracked it sooner or managed to get the job done with fewer casualties? Or do you think Haig was as good as any of those other guys and they were up against the brutal logic of the First World War? OK, I'll break down my answer into, into, into two parts. The first one is, as far as commanding armies in the field as being an army group commander, if Haig had fallen under the proverbial bus or had been hit by a stray shell, someone would have done, yeah, probably as well. Maybe a little bit better, maybe a little bit worse. Someone like Rawlinson or Plumer, uh, Monash and uh, Curry, the Australian-Canadian, were probably a bit a bit too junior. And also, of course, they were from the Dominions. But someone would have done it as well. But taking Haig's job as a totality, I'm not convinced there is there was anybody else who could do it as quite as well as he was, because... Haig's importance, or a very large part of his importance anyway, lies in his administration ability and actually his role as a military reformer. Not only did he play a really substantial role in getting the army ready for the First World War, uh, from the end of 1915, when he takes command uh, onwards, he plays a really significant role in transforming this you know, collection of amateur soldiers who had been dustmen and bank clerks two years before into a into basically the, into the war-winning army it became uh, in 1918. And I'm not sure any of the candidates on, on display, as it were, had those abilities as well, which is one of the reasons why when Haig became commander-in-chief in 1915, almost everybody said that he was the man for the job. But equally, well, when, when Haig was in command, and clearly there are times when his job looked very, very dodgy. I mean, Lloyd George, the prime minister, would have happily sacked him. There was no obvious heir apparent, as Haig had been heir apparent to Sir John French uh, in 1914, 1915, which suggests to me that well, of course, no, nobody is ever completely indispensable. But Haig actually had a very rare combination of abilities. Now, it's quite right that he should be primarily remembered and indeed criticised um, for presiding over these incredibly bloody battles and the mistakes that he made have been pointed out time and time, including 
by me in, in my book, and it's actually quite right that that should be the case. But I think we need to see Haig, Haig's career as a whole, particularly his career on the Western Front. He was far more than simply a battlefield commander. Now, I'm, I'm not one to sort of put people into categories of being, you know, the greatest generals of all time or anything like that, because I think it's quite simply you're not comparing like with like if you're matching Hayden up against Napoleon or Marlborough or something like that. But I think if you measure Haig as a purely battlefield commander, much of a muchness. If you take Haig as a commander-in-chief, then I think actually has a much greater claim to distinction. Well, and, and also he's often portrayed as a sort of technological backwards and conservative. You know, his, his order of a huge number of tanks after they were tried out on the Somme in, in September of 1916, I mean, that, that's very far-sighted. Well, it is. I mean, I mean Haig, Haig was actually the opposite of a technophobe. If anything, the, the real problem with Haig and technology, he was a bit too keen on it. Um, he didn't pretend to understand technology, but actually he saw its importance and he tended to sort of place too much emphasis on very fragile first-generation kits. So tanks are an obvious example. Uh, quite simply, I think he expected them to do too much when they're introduced onto the battlefield in September 1916. And um, we say much the same thing about his use of gas at loose in September 1915, a year, a year before. He quite simply expected too much uh, of you know, some very untried technology. But against that, I think we've got to set his uh, really very important advocacy of tanks, of aircraft. He was a great fan of the Royal Flying Corps and later the, uh, later the Royal Air Force. And, uh, and, and actually machine guns. There's, a, there's this ridiculous story, which is still goes the rounds now, that Haig was anti-machine guns. Uh, in fact, he was always very in, much in favour of the machine guns. In 1915, he's supposed to have said that it was a most overrated weapon and two per, per battalion was more than sufficient. Well, actually, that quote comes from a very dodgy source published, I think, 15 years after the end of the First World War. And the contemporary record from the time he's, he's supposed to have said this uh, is very different. He's very much in favour of machine guns. And I suppose, Gary, what's very striking about your book as well is whilst subsequent generations have criticised and, and found fault, he was incredibly popular after the war with the rank and file men who'd served under him and arguably had, had suffered so, so greatly under, under his command. Well, that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, while the war is going on, he had a certain level of popularity. But after the war, I think largely because... A, he was seen as the man who won the war, or one of the men who won the war, won the war. Um, but also because of his work with the ex-servicemen um, battling for pensions and things like that, Haig became a national hero on absolutely huge uh, level, something which we've completely forgotten about now. And certainly I found very little evidence that while the war was going on, soldiers, ordinary soldiers, were critical of him. Now, very often the comments that you get from old soldiers are are taken from writings years after the war or indeed from people being inter uh, interviewing them for television and what have you in the in the 1980s and 1990s but you know i found very little evidence that people actually disliked him while the war was going on and i think that takes us to the the question about how the british nation as a whole regarded as the regarded the first world war while the war was being fought it was a popular war I mean, not popular in the sense of people were wildly enthusiastic. I mean, the idea of people rushing to the colours in 1914 because they're very keen to have a war has been thoroughly debunked. 
that people recognised that as dreadful as the war was, there was something even worse than that, and that something was a German victory. And that saw not only the British army, but indeed the British nation through the First World War. Well, of course, we are so far divorced from that mindset now, we find it difficult to think our way back into the way people th thought during the First World War. But you're absolutely right. Douglas Haig was incredibly popular in the, in the aftermath of the war. And while the war was going on, he was respected rather than deeply popular. But very, very few soldiers had anything bad to say about it. Well, ordinary soldiers. Some of his uh, peers as generals actually were, were, were less than enthused. But Haig was seen as being in the end, the man who was doing a very difficult job and doing it well. In the end, he was regarded as being one of the men who won the war. Well, Gary Sheffield, thank you so much. Your book, Douglas Haig, From Somme to the Victory, is out now. You are working in one of the most exciting and controversial fields, if you talk to people out there in the countryside. And it must be, uh, it, it's, it's great fun hearing your interventions and and words of wisdom reminding us that all the, the, the general, the, our impression of the generals is wildly skewed. So thanks very much, Gary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.